Section one of Here and Hereafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. Mala, parts one and two. Part one. It was Saturday night at the end of a hard week. I was just finishing my dinner when I was told that a man wished to see me at once in the surgery. The name, Tarn, was unknown to me. I found a fair-haired man of thirty in a faded and frayed suit of mustard colour, holding in his hand a broken straw hat. His face was rather fat and roundish, his build powerful but paunchy. The colour of face and hands showed open-air life and work. His manner was slow, apathetic heavy his speech was slow too but it was the speech of an educated man and the voice was curiously gentle my wife's ill doctor can you come i can what's the matter with her mr tarn he explained i do not regard child-bearing as illness and told him so i told him further that he ought to have made his arrangements and to have engaged a doctor and nurse beforehand in her own country they do not regard it as illness either the women there do not have doctor or nurse she did not wish it but however as she seemed to suffer well well we'll get on where do you live felonsdean eight miles away and right upon the downs phew can i get my car there most of the way at any rate we could always walk the rest we'll chance it i'll bring the car round shan't keep you a minute mr tarn i kept him rather longer than that there were the lamps to see to and i had directions to give to my servants i did not take my driver with me he had been at work since eight in the morning when i re-entered the surgery i found tarn still standing in just the same pose and place as if he had not moved a hair's breadth since i left him ready now i said as i picked up my bag he took out a pinch of sovereigns from his waistcoat pocket seven or eight of them your fee doctor he said that can wait until i've done my work come along shall i lend you an overcoat he thanked me but refused it saying that he was used to old weathers the night was fairly warm too he sat beside me on the front seat the first six miles were easy enough along a good road, and I talked to him as I drove. I omit the professional part of our conversation, the questions which a doctor would naturally put on such an occasion. So, your wife's a foreigner, I said. What nationality? She is a woman of colour, a negress. It is true that all coloured people inspire me with a feeling of physical repulsion, and equally true that I can set all feelings of repulsion aside when there is work to be done. Ah, I said, and you live up at Felonsdean. To tell the truth, I didn't know anybody lived there. I remember the place, came on it two years ago or more, when I was roaming over the downs. There was a farmhouse, all in ruins. And let me see, was there a cottage? I didn't come upon anybody living there then. I remember that, because I was thirsty after my walk and couldn't get a drink. There was no one there then, and there is no cottage. We came last year. 
part of the farmhouse has been repaired well you've struck about the loneliest spot in england who's your landlord eh it's mine i bought it two acres and the farmhouse had trouble to get it a deal of trouble and who's with your wife now i asked nobody she's alone in the house well that's not right i said we have no servants do everything ourselves the nearest house is a farmer's at Sandine, three miles away, and we've had no dealings with him. It couldn't be helped, and—she's different, you know. I was not long in coming to you. I caught the mail-cart as soon as I reached the road and got a lift. Still, I'm thinking, how am I to get on? You'll find I can do anything a woman can do, and do it better. I am more intelligent, and I have no nerves. You must pull up at the next gate, doctor. We strike across the downs there. We had done the six miles, mostly uphill, in twenty-one minutes. Now we turned through the gate, along a turf track deeply rutted. Luckily the weather had been dry for the last fortnight. We crawled up to the top of the crest, and then along it for a mile. I saw lights ahead in a hollow below. A dog barked savagely. "'That Felonsdine?' I asked. That's it. The descent is bad. When I got to it, I found that it was very bad. I stopped the engines. If we break our necks, we shan't be much use, I said. I'll leave the car here. There's nobody to run away with it. Shall we take a lamp? he asked. Better. He picked up my bag, unhitched one lamp, and extinguished the other, while I spread the rug over the seats. His ordinary slowness was deceptive. When he was actually doing something, he was remarkably quick without being hurried. He was quick, too, in seeing a mechanical device. That was clear from the way he handled the lamps. We began the brief descent, and the dog barked more furiously than ever. "'Is that dog loose?' I asked as we neared the house. "'Yes,' he said, "'but he's educated.' He'd kill a stranger who came alone. He won't touch you. He gave a whistle, and the barking stopped. The dog, an enormous black retriever, came running towards us. His eyes in the lamplight had a liquid trustfulness. Heel, said Tarn sharply, and the dog paced quietly behind him, taking no notice of me, whatever. We went through a yard surrounded by a wall of rough stone. By the light of the lamp I saw that the wall had been mended in places. There was a rough shed on the left, with crates and packing-cases under it. The front door was flush with the wall of the house. It was unlocked, and when Tarn opened it a bright light streamed out. Within was a small square hall, and I noticed that the light was incandescent gas. Tarn saw that I had noticed it. "'I put in a gas-plant,' he said. "'Will you come this way?' He took me into a great living-room. I should think it was about forty feet by twenty. There was a big open fireplace at the further end of the room. The floor was flagged, without rugs or carpets. The walls were the same inside as out, rough stone and mortar. There were three small windows high up in the walls. The windows were newly glazed. The walls had been repaired. There was very little furniture, three wooden Windsor chairs, a couple of deal tables, 
and some cupboards made from packing cases. There was no attempt at ornament or decoration of any kind, and there was no disorder. The scanty furniture was precisely arranged, nothing was left lying about, and everything was scrupulously clean. The timbers of the pointed roof seemed to me to be new. The room was very brightly lit, with more gas jets, of the cheapest description, than were needed. What struck me most was the smell of the place, a smoky, greenish, sub-acid, slightly aromatic smell. I wondered if it could come from the great logs that smouldered in the fireplace, before which the retriever now stretched himself. "'Queer smell here,' I said. "'What is it?' "'It comes,' he said, "'from the smoke of juniper leaves. "'You don't burn those in the fireplace, do you?' "'No, I... I don't think you'd understand.' The words were said gently, almost sadly, without offensive intention. But they annoyed me a little. I did not like to be told by this scarecrow that I could not understand. "'Very well,' I said. "'Now then, where's your wife?' He pointed to a door at the further end of the room, on the right of the fireplace. "'Through there,' he said. "'I... I don't know if you speak French.' "'I do.' Mala speaks French more easily than English. She lived for many years in Paris, was born there. You'll find in that room the things a chemist in Helmstone thought might be wanted. If you need anything else, or want my help in any way, I shall be here. Good, I said, and passed through the door he had indicated. I must remember that I am not writing for doctors. All I need say of the case is that it was a good thing Tarn fetched me. It was a case where the intervention of a medical man was imperatively necessary. Otherwise all went perfectly well. The child was born in a little more than an hour after my arrival. A girl, healthy and vigorous, and as black as the ace of spades. Tarn did all that was required of him perfectly, quickly but without noise or hurry, and with great intelligence. Mala, his wife, seemed to me to be very young. She was a girl of splendid physique. Her face, like the face of every negress, repelled me. She showed affection for her child, and expressed her intention of nursing it herself, of which she seemed capable. This was all natural. More natural than normal, unfortunately. But all the time I was conscious that I was attending a woman of morbid psychology. When I left her asleep, it was to join a man of morbid psychology in the great living room. "'All well?' asked Tarn, as I entered. "'Quite. Both asleep. My body was tired, and I dare say I ought to have been sleepy myself, but my mind was awake and alert. The unusual nature of the experience may account for it. I sat down and gave him some instructions and advice about his wife, to which he paid close attention. "'Must you come here again?' he asked. I thought it a question that might have been better expressed. "'Yes,' I said. "'I don't want to pile up the visits, but I must do what's wanted.' "'I didn't mean that. I meant that, unless you were coming again in any case, I should have to make arrangements for fetching you if the need arose.' I laughed. 
Arrangements? Well, you've nobody to send but yourself. There's the dog. But he doesn't know where I live. I was meaning to teach him that tomorrow. I'd better do it in any case. One never knows what may happen. He sighed profoundly. Teach him to fetch the doctor, eh? He must be a clever beggar. What do you call him? He has no name. He's not a pet. You must take some refreshment before you go. Whiskey? Ah, a drop of whiskey and a biscuit would be rather welcome. Thanks. He brought out a jar of whiskey, a gasogen of soda water, and some large hard biscuits in their native tin. To your daughter's health, I said as I raised my glass. He suddenly put his glass down. Farce, he said savagely. But it's all farce, this, this fuss. She's born to die, isn't she? It's the common lot. She's hauled out of nothing by blind chance, to be tossed back into nothing by blind chance. Drink the health of the seaweed that the tide throws up on the shore, and the tide sucks back again. No, not I. The whole thing had been so strange that this outbreak did not particularly astonish me. You'd be a happier man, Mr. Tarn, and a more sensible man, if you would simply accept nature as you find it. You can't alter it, and you can't understand it. You're beating your head against a wall. This ragged fellow took on an air of superiority that annoyed me. Yes, yes, he said, I've heard all that, and so often. It's the point of view of ordinary materialistic science. You are not a religious man. Certainly, I said, I don't pretend that I know what I do not know. Nor am I fool enough, Mr. Tarn, to complain of what from insufficient data I am unable to understand. Put in other words, I am neither an orthodox believer nor an atheist. Do I understand that you are a religious man yourself? The religion of Mala and her people is mine. Really? You turn the tables on the missionaries. Well, the theological discussion is interesting, but it is often interminable, and I have work to do tomorrow. I must be getting on. I will come with you as far as the car. But first, doctor, the dog must learn that you are welcome here, and that he is never to harm you. Call him, and give him a bit of biscuit. I called him. He looked up from his place before the fire, but did not move. Then Tarn made a movement with his hand, and the dog got up, shook himself, and walked slowly towards me. He went all round me, sniffing. I held out the biscuit to him, and he looked away to his master and whined. Tarn nodded, and the dog immediately took the food from my hand. Yes, said Tarn, as if answering what I was thinking. He has never been allowed to take food from any hand but mine. He will never forget you. You can come here at any hour of the day or night now with perfect safety. It's... it's the freedom of the city. As Tarn climbed with me up to the car, he spoke again on the subject of my fee. I suppose I should not have offered it in advance, he said. But it occurred to me that, as I never think about clothes, I looked very poor, and the place where I have chosen to live also looked very poor and you did not know me. As a matter of fact, 
i am bothered with far more money than i want ah <laughs> i laughed i could do with a little worry of that sort as he fixed up the lamps he thanked me warmly for what i had done for mala and asked what time he might expect me on the morrow i opened my pocket-book and looked at it by the light of the lamp well i've a light day to-morrow barring accidents i shall be here some time in the afternoon the drive home was accomplished without incident i ran the car into the coach-house and went straight to bed but for more than an hour i could not get to sleep i was haunted by that man and his negress wife building theories about them trying to account for them just as i was dropping off i was awakened again by a smell of bitter smoke in my nostrils the smell of burning juniper leaves then i recognized that the smell was a memory illusion and fell asleep in real earnest part two i got back from my sunday morning round before one helmstone was rather full of visitors that day and there were many cars before the big hotel in the queen's road as my man was driving slowly through the traffic i saw a hundred yards away tarn striding along in the same shabby clothes with his retriever at his heel he turned down a side street and i saw no more of him on inquiry i found that he had not called at my house he had merely been there as he said to give the dog his lesson i am a bachelor i lunched alone on cold beef and beer and i read the lancet i intended to remain materialistic and scientific and not to be infected by that air of mystery and morbidity which seemed to hang around tarn and his negress wife at felonstein i had not been in practice for ten years without coming on strange occurrences before and they had all lost their strangeness when the facts had been filled in my after-luncheon visit to felonstein was of course professional but if i had any chance i meant to satisfy an ordinary lay curiosity as well i drove myself and the track across the downs looked worse in daylight than it had done by night still it seemed reasonable to suppose that what the car had done then it could do now i could see more clearly now what had been done in the way of repairs to that ruined and long deserted farmhouse the pointed roof over the big room where i had sat the night before had been mended and made weather-tight the chimney-stack was new and so were the window casements adjoining the big room was a building of irregular shape that might possibly have contained three or four other rooms roofed with new corrugated iron one or two outbuildings looked as if they had been newly constructed from old materials but that part of the farmhouse which had originally been two-storied had been left quite untouched half the roof of it was down the windows were without glass and one saw through them the broken stairs and torn wallpaper peeling off and flapping in the brisk march breeze on the grass field beyond the courtyard two good alderney cows were grazing most of the land looked neglected but tarn had no help and had everything to do himself an orchard of stunted and miserable-looking fruit trees was sheltered by a dip of the land from north and east the dog barked furiously when he heard my car and before i began the climb down to the farmhouse i picked up two or three flints 
with intent to use them if he went for me but all signs of hostility vanished when he saw me he did not leap and gamble for joy but he thrust his nose into my hand and then walked just in front of me wagging his tail and looking back from time to time to see that i understood and was following him he led the way across the courtyard through the open outer door and across the hall to the door of the big room he scratched at the door from impatience i knocked and entered tarn had fallen asleep before the fire in one of the windsor chairs he was just rousing himself as i entered he had taken off his coat and his heavy boots and wore felt slippers that had a homemade look from the table beside him it appeared that he had lunched frugally on whisky milk and hard biscuits sorry i was asleep he said but the dog knew ah i said you'd a long walk this morning i saw you at helmstone yes i told you you should have come into my house for a rest how's your wife getting on had a good night it seems so she has slept a long time so has the child i will find out if she will see you he passed into the inner room if she had expressed any disinclination to see me i should have been extremely angry also i might have thought it right to disregard the disinclination but tarn reappeared almost directly and asked me to go in i found that all was going as well as possible both with her and with the child she really was a splendid animal unhurt either by excessive work or as many modern mothers are by a rotten fashionable life with me she was reticent almost sullen in manner yet she seemed docile and had carried out my orders the only difficulty was as i had expected to get her to remain in bed with her child she showed white teeth in ecstasies of maternal joy before i had finished with her i heard the rain pattering on the iron roof of her room i went back into the great living room it was rather dark there for the sky was heavily clouded and the windows placed high up gave but little light the table had been cleared and tarn was not there i sat down to wait for him and the dog got up from the fire and came over to me and laid his head on my knee he was an enormous and very powerful brute as much retriever as anything but evidently with another strain in his composition i felt quite safe with him now talked to him and patted him attentions which he received gravely without resistance but without any signs of pleasure presently tarn came in from outside his hair was wet with the rain i've taken up a tarpaulin he said and thrown it over your car doctor that's very good of you i said i was just doubting if that rug of mine would be enough it comes down heavily you must remain here a while unless you have other patients whom you must see at once no i said this finishes my work for today i hope i always try to arrange for sunday afternoon free and i'm glad to accept your hospitality no juniper smoke today there has been no occasion he went on quickly to inquire about his wife and child he was not a man who showed his emotions much but he certainly left me with the impression that he was fond and proud of the child 
He asked several questions about her as he went round the room, lighting the gas jets. Then we sat before the log fire and lit our pipes. "'One's a little surprised to find gas in a place like this,' I said. "'It makes less work than lamps. When one tries to be independent and do the work oneself, that's a consideration. Besides, it gives more light, and people who live alone, as we do, need plenty of light. I'm afraid it must all seem rather puzzling.' "'Well,' I said, "'I don't want to be curious.' And I don't want to puzzle anybody, nor to enlighten anybody either. Still, you have done much for us. Mala says she would have died but for you. If you care for a very simple story, you can have it. Just as you like, I said. But I should imagine that your story would be interesting. I do not think so. A little more than a year ago, I was in Paris. Mala was also there. I met her through a friend of mine. I brought her to England and married her. You know how such a marriage is regarded here, how a woman of colour is regarded in any case. Very well, Felonsdean was a place where we could live to ourselves. He stopped, as if there had been no more to say. So far, I said, you have told me precisely what one might have conjectured. How did it all happen? What were you doing in Paris? And Mala? Who was the friend? How did it come about? He spoke slowly, more to himself, as it seemed, than to me. My friend was an English Catholic, an ex-priest, a religious man like myself. His mind gave way, and he is shut up in an asylum now. He took me to see Mala, night after night. Sometimes it was miraculous, and sometimes nothing. When the performance went badly, the uncle beat her. We could stop that, because it was only a question of money. I remember it all, settled after midnight, at a café where we drank absinthe. The uncle with arms too long and very prognathous, like a dressed-up ape, pouncing on the banknotes with hairy fingers, and counting aloud in French. Very bad French, not like Mala's. He was very old, a hundred years, he said. He cannot have been her uncle, really. A great uncle, perhaps. He was not a religious man at all. He kept patting the pocket where the banknotes were. We put him in a fiacre, because he was drunk. We were out of Paris that night, my friend and Mala and myself. Next morning we crossed the channel, and next night there was a riot at the theatre because Mala did not appear. Did I say where we went in England? I'm not used to speaking so much, and it confuses me. I was afraid he would stop again. I don't think you mentioned the exact name, I said. Wilsing, my friend's own place. High walls and lonely gardens, but too many servants. They all looked questions at us. Gardeners would touch their caps and look round after we had passed. You can imagine it. It was while we were at Wilsing that I married Mala, and shortly afterwards my poor friend had to be taken away. You see, doctor, he was a very earnest man and very religious. He had gone too far along a new road, and he was horribly frightened but could not go back. It was too much for him. 
Mala and I had to go away also, of course. I remember hotels that would not take us in. We have been followed in the streets by jeering crowds. Even when I had found Felonsdene, there was endless trouble before I could buy it. No tenant could be found for it. There is some silly story that the place is haunted. Besides, the house was all in ruins and too far from... from everything. And yet the owner would not sell. He paused. And in the end? I asked. Oh, yes, I got it in the end. I tempted him. Here we have arranged life as we wish it to be, and we practice our religion without molestation. There are consolations. The consolations of religion, I suggested. Suddenly he put down his pipe and stood up erect. He stretched an arm out clumsily towards me. His eyes flashed under the bright gas-jets, and his nostrils quivered. He spoke in a low voice, but with the most intense emphasis. "'You don't know what you're saying. In our religion there are no consolations. There is only propitiation, and again propitiation, and always propitiation. The sacrifice of more and more as the end draws nearer.' He swept his arm round and pointed at the door of his wife's room. What consolation is there from the power that there, in there where you have been, linked love with life, only to link life with death again? What consolation from the power that has closed and sealed the door of knowledge? He sat down and remained silent. I was beginning to form some conclusions. Then what consolations have you? Linked to bitterness and yet something. For example, I have Mala. Your child also? Yes, the child too, for a little time, perhaps. There was again a pause. The rain had cleared now, and I rose to go. Mr. Tarn, I said, before I leave you, I think it my duty as a doctor to tell you something. About Mala? he asked eagerly. About yourself? He laughed contemptuously. If you go on with your present manner of life, I will not answer for the consequences. I think you are playing, and have been playing, a very dangerous game. The case of your own friend warns you how dangerous it is. This prolonged solitude is bad for you and bad for your wife. This pessimistic brooding over things you cannot understand which you are pleased to call a religion, is worse still, especially if it is accompanied by any rites or ceremonies which might impress a morbid imagination. I'm not going to mince matters. If you don't give this up, you'll lose your reason. What is it you want me to do? Do not be so absurdly sensitive about the fact that you have married a negress. Be a man and not a baby. Go and live in some village and mix with your fellow men. No novelty lasts more than three months. Before the end of that time your wife will excite no attention at all. The position will be accepted. And if you can't find any better religion than the dismal rubbish that is poisoning your mind at present, then have none at all. It will be better for you. It is impossible to take your advice, he said stolidly. 
Why? Because Mala and I are as we were made. We won't argue it. Please yourself. I've done my duty. Goodbye, Mr. Tarn. He told me that he was coming with me to the road. The very thin skin of turf on the hard rock of the crest of the hill would be so greasy that the wheels of my car would go round ineffectively and refuse to bite without his weight on the back axle. At the rutty descent on the other side he would get off and walk by the car to lend a hand if the wheels sank too deep in the mud there. His predictions happened exactly, and I was very glad of his help. At the road he left me, up on the hill his dog guarded the tarpaulin, and waited for his return. Certainly, in some simple, practical matters, the man was still showing himself sane and shrewd enough. I dined that night with a bachelor friend in Helmstone, who has a good reference library and a vast fund of curious information. He told me to what power the smell of burning juniper was supposed to be agreeable. He also informed me that Wilsing was the Herefordshire seat of the Earl of Delgin. Poor beggar, added my host. Delgin? I asked. Why? Oh, well, he's in an asylum, you know, and likely to stop there, so they say. End of section one.